My guest today is Dr. Barry Goldman. Barry and I, another uh, trip back down memory lane, were classmates and lab mates at the University of Utah and back in graduate school. And um, if I recall correctly, pretty wicked with a croquet mallet. That was not the question I, or, or the comment I expected, but yes, I, I was at least within the top 10 of our lab in croquet. <laughs> we used to play croquet and volleyball, and there were no boundaries on the croquet field when we yeah. played during our little afternoon breaks. Yes. Um, it, it was, it was yeah. an enjoyable way to, to waste a little bit of time while you were thinking about and waiting for things to grow. Right. Right. So Barry is the founder and chief scientific officer of Pluton Biosciences. He led the microbial testing pipeline for Indigo Ag and served as the microbial discovery lead for Monsanto. He's also published over 30 peer-reviewed studies and is, is an inventor on more than 10 patents. Barry, welcome to CC Life Science. Thanks, Chris. This is going to be a fun one today. We're going to the ag field, which is a little bit different for us, and um, the microbiome, you could say. So uh, we're talking about uh, bacterial cover crops or microbial cover crops and how that can impact um, carbon storage. So tell us about Pluton Biosciences, where the idea came from, and what your focus is. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, and I'm 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 thank you for in inviting me on uh, to talk about this stuff. I have a, a lot of passion around microbes. You know, we spent, you and I spent a lot of time thinking about those. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea from Pluton really evolved over uh, quite a bit of time. It was, um, I started saying that in science, we had started uncovering that the uh, number of microbes was almost unlimited. The, you know, the, the recent sequencing and computational biology aspects uh, of, of technology made us understand that there may be as many as a trillion species of microbes in the world, and which is a, roughly a thousandfold more than anybody had even considered. And, you know, when you look at the microbial products and how they've changed humanity, you know, just the ideas of antibiotics and, uh, you know, and cloning, and now recently CRISPR, all come from bacteria. And, uh, and so the idea was, well, you know, if, if this much has been done and we only understood a tiny fraction, why don't we keep looking in places where we just, we really haven't been looking before to start looking at those microbes that people just haven't looked at before. And so the point of Pluton was to start finding a different way to look at those organisms. And so that's really where the idea came from. And we started about uh, four and a half years ago or so uh, and uh, and started down with this, coming down with this idea about how do we look at microbes that are rare, but might provide new ways for us to solve big problems for humanity. So you didn't necessarily have an outcome in mind, it sounds like. You were saying, what could we find bacteria that are capable of doing? <laughs> well, well, there were, I think there was a little bit of an outcome. I'd, I'd worked in agriculture for about uh, 25 years and realized there was a lot of issues. I think the biggest of the issues that I was looking at was uh, insects becoming resistant to chemistries and to genetically modified plants with that contained uh, essentially proteins that kill the insect. It was a cool technology. It was developed in the mid-90s. 
And essentially the only, so the insects that feed on our crops, this would just kill them. So the only way it would kill them is if they munch on the crops. So how's that for targeted, right? You, uh, the, 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 the moth comes around. It's actually the larval stage of the moth comes around and it only dies after it chews on the plant that it wants to. And so as far as a farmer is concerned, well, that's the one I want dead. I don't care about anything else, but the thing that eats my crop, that's the one I want it. And I want it dead before I have to do anything about it. And so the idea of putting a protein uh, that kills the insect, that's specific just for that insect into the plant and so that it, it kills that, that was a revolutionary idea. It started in like late 70s and early 80s, and it took about 15 or 20 years really for it to become a, a novel product. But now... 25 years later, 25, 30 years later, the insects are becoming resistant to those proteins. And so the question is, can we find new proteins? Can we find new chemistries that are safer for humans, that can protect our crops, can reduce the amount that a farmer loses, feed more people on less land so we can protect the land like rainforests to protect all of humanity? And so really that was the target, was to say, how do we find new new uh, molecules that will protect crops. I, I, I just want to say, I love that vision. Like you're just thinking bigger. Like there is a specific goal in mind, but here's what could happen if we could do this. So, right. Kudos yeah. And we, and, and, and I guess the phrase we had when I started raising money and I started asking people to join this little group was, and this, this will be common to you is like, if you can imagine it, a microbe already does it. I was going to say that. I mean, like. <laughs> comes, comes right out of our lab experience. That was what we were taught. If you can imagine it, a microbe's already doing it and doing it better than you can imagine. And right, so the idea is. <laughs> you just need to find them. And it's a very different model than the last uh, 20 years of, of saying humanity can create it, which is great. We've done terrific with it. But what if we've never thought of it? And there are microbes that have been doing these for, you know, a billion years. Literally a trillion microbes have been thinking about these kinds of things, thinking anthropomorphically, thinking about this stuff for a trillion years, and they've solved pretty much every problem. So you think about that, that, you know, as, as I was thinking about this whole idea, you think about the plastics that's sitting in the Pacific Ocean. Well, there are microbes that can degrade it. You know, so when, when I was thinking about this, I said, we can solve anything, right? Now, to start a company, you can't try and solve everything. You've got to focus on what you know and what you can deliver. And so what we focused on was something that I knew, which was agriculture and a space that I thought uh, was, was amenable to um, ways for us to go after, you know, these, these new microbes. Awesome. All right. So remind uh, my non-ag friends, which is probably yeah. most people who listen to my yeah. podcast, <laughs> what a cover crop is. Cause I think I only learned this when I bought a house and was, trying to figure out what to do with my garden in the winter and explain the concept of a microbial cover crop. Okay. So, um, so the idea of a cover crop is you have a, your standard crop during the season and you, and traditionally uh, what's been done is, is you would till and essentially take a tractor over it and put that crop back into the ground, like take the stubble from corn or the stubble from soybeans or something and put that back into the ground. But the problem is, it leaves the field accessible to too much rainfall and to wind and different kinds of erosion. And so you lose nutrients and you lose soil. So the idea of cover crops and this is stuff that's been around for literally thousands of years 
is to plant something else into that soil to protect the soil, protect it from rain, protect it from wind. And if it's the right kind of nutrient or right, right kind of cover crop, maybe put a little things back in. So a lot of them are nitrogen fixers. So alfalfa is a pretty good cover crop. And it puts a little bit of nitrogen back into the soil. And so it makes it a, a, a little healthier. Um, in addition, a good cover crop will also put roots into the soil and sort of break up that structure. When tractors have gone over it, people walked over it, the soil compacts. Rain and other things also compact the soil. And so by getting roots into there, then it can sort of break up the soil and make the soil overall healthier. The problem with it for growers, for farmers, is that, um, uh, it, it, is that it costs money. I mean, it's expensive. And so uh, you have to, you know, for a, for a farmer that's sitting at the edge of, of how much they make and, and how much they, they, can, they can bring in to feed their families, it's like, well, that's extra money. I've also got to take my tractor afield another time, and that costs money. And then when they're done, they're weeds. You don't want those things in the field. They're, they're pulling nutrients out after they've done their job. And so for most farmers, the cost going in is 50 to to $100 to put it in, and then you have weeds, and then you've got to do all this extra work for an improved soil. As a consequence, only 5% of farmers actually use cover crops. And in some places north where the cover crop can't go, so let's, let's say you go to North Dakota or Minnesota, well, it gets too cold too fast, you actually can't do a cover crop. So we came up with this idea of, of a microbial cover crop because microbes can grow in about a month and grow pretty fast. They're really cheap. Uh, that, that is, we can come at much lower cost than making seeds. They can still put carbon and nitrogen into the soil. They can actually, when done right, can protect the amount of rain that's coming in because you can form a crust. These microbes can form a crust. And then um, the farmer's done. They don't have to worry about going back out into the field to remove weeds because these aren't weeds. They're actually the same things that are found in the soil. In fact, that was the whole concept. You take things out of the soil, you find the right microbes that can do this job, and then you just put them back on the soil. And then they just get, uh, as most microbiomes work, they just get overwhelmed by the, by the mass of microbes that are there. And so they just go back into the soil where, the, where they belong um, because they're behaved in the right way. Yeah, so as I'm thinking about that, the cover crops, as you say, become weeds at some point. Now they're competitive with what you're trying to grow. Exactly. And you're flipping that. Now you're boosting, you're giving some of the right microbes an advantage for a short window of time. Mm -hmm. And they will eventually be outcompeted by everything else that was already there. But right. for some period of time, you're putting on a crust, you're protecting the soil, you're putting some carbon and nitrogen back in. Right. And, and it's powered by the sunlight, right? So it isn't like they just Yay. magically do this. These are actually photosynthetic organisms. And they're just using the power of the sun exactly like plants do. And they use that power to do two things, to, to turn CO2 from the atmosphere into sugars and then take N2, right, which is the, the basic form of nitrogen that represents 78% of the atmosphere, and turn that into ammonia. And that's, that's, that's a very energetically expensive reaction. And so today, we do that through a process called the Haber-Bosch process, and it uses lots and lots of energy. And in fact, it creates a lot of CO2 gases, and by mining for, for methane, causes a lot of problems. And that's kind of how we... That's basically the 1950s and 60s was making synthetic fertilizer from this. And it fed lots of people. We had 3 billion people 
in the 50s, and now we have over 8 billion people, and that's largely because of this synthetic fertilizer, but it has a bad side effect. It's impacting our climate in a very negative way. And so one of the ideas is, can we turn that around? Can we let the microbes take that energy from the sun that's just going onto the ground and turn that into, into ammonia in the same way the Haber-Bosch process does and feed the microbes and then have the microbes feed the soil and then the plants that we need to eat to grow and, and, and keep all of us healthy and happy, have them use that to turn that into, into uh, productive food. Nice. All right. Science sidebar here. I get the CO2 yes. and the photosynthesis part, turning it into usable carbon, sugars, etc. Um, where does the ammonia fit in in the microbes' lifestyle in turning it to nitrogen? Just for use in biosynthesis of making amino acids? And yeah, ex- absolutely. That's that's where it comes from. So, so um, a little more of a science sidebar. So N2 gets converted into ammonia, NH3. That is actually put onto an amino acid called glutamate to make something called glutamine. And from there, it enters the, the cycle for all, you know, and turned into the rest of nitrogen for the plant. So, um, but it, again, it's very energetically expensive to do that, to break those bonds apart and to put hydrogens onto there to turn N2 into ammonia. And so that evolved once in history. The idea that there are organisms that fix nitrogen. It evolved once at some magical period a billion years ago or so, and some organisms figured out how to do that. Most of them, they were probably sitting at the bottom of the ocean, getting there in a, in a place where nothing else grew. Heat's coming off the bottom of the ocean, and, uh, and they were splitting nitrogen at that point uh, through the energy generated by that heat and, and adding it to make biomass. And some of, some of the earliest organisms in the world were living there. And somehow that set of molecules that could do that went to a few other organisms. We know that best like rhizobium, the rhizobium that grows with soybeans, right? That, that allows soybeans to grow with less nitrogen. Uh, that, that same set of genes is the same, basically set of genes that evolved a billion years ago and now is in uh, um, different kinds of microbes, but it's only found in bacteria. It's not found in fungi. It's not found in humans. It's when they say, you know, plants fix nitrogen, plants do not fix nitrogen plants have microbes that live with them that allow and those microbes provide the nitrogen for the plants. I'm going to tell the audience, I feel like I'm coming home. We don't talk about bacteria <laughs> enough on this podcast. So between you and Mike Mahan, who was a couple weeks ago oh, right. on the episode, I just feel like I'm, I'm with my people now. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So you have found one or more consortia of bacteria, you're going to explain that in a moment, um, that can perform this function of photosynthesis and fixing nitrogen. So why a consortia and how do you isolate them? Yeah, so a consortia means group of, of organisms, just any sort of group. And it turns out that some of these organisms can do both of those reactions by themselves. So there are a type of organism called cyanobacteria that can both photosynthesize and use that energy to fix nitrogen. But it turns out, and what we've seen in our lab, is they're happiest when they grow with other organisms. And so we started with uh, an environmental sample that contained 10,000 different species. And then we grow them under conditions where we require them to make their own carbon and make their own nitrogen. That was basically, it's a little trickier than that, that in the presence of, of, of light. 
And a few come up under those conditions. And when you say, well, what's there? We find the same set of organisms, find these cyanobacteria, but we also find some friends that always seem to come along. And, and that isn't surprising. As humans, we have a human microbiome, right? We have these things that live in our gut. And they evolve together. It isn't random what's in our, what's in our gut. There's some very specific players that keep showing up again and again and again. And so it's not surprising that these cyanobacteria grew up with these other organisms that allow them to do their job better. And just like, you know, cows, that there's grass and, and cows start eating the grass. And that, that's kind of the beginning of our, our food system. Uh, the, the cyanobacteria, the beginning of the food system, right? They get all the first primary. They get carbon and they get nitrogen. And they make what's called uh, an extra polymeric matrix. Uh, so it's kind of like they, they excrete a lot of extra goo is essentially what it is. It protects them. It keeps them from drying out. But other organisms go, oh, this is food for me. This is lots of sugars and all sorts of goodies. But what's happened over, over evolutionary time is these other organisms have provided value to the cyanobacteria. And so not maybe classically symbionts, but certainly friends. And as a consequence, when you just isolate a cyanobacteria from nature, usually you'll find 10 to 20 organisms that live within this, this matrix. And so we suspect what we're finding is just things that have come along and live in this matrix and provide value to the cyanobacteria and allow them to grow together. And so we just thought we would just sort of follow along what nature's already provided and make groups of organisms that can work together to solve the problem. What we find is when we do growth curves and ask for them to grow, they always seem to do better with more than one organisms. So we isolate the cyano to a single organism. And then we say, well, how well does this grow compared to hanging out with its friends? And with its friends, it always grows better. And so we say, well, don't, don't break up a good team, have them hang out together and, and, and do their job. All right. So as a group, how do you see them behaving in the lab? Of course, as you say, you find an isolate or a group of bacteria that with just light and minimal nutrients, no nitrogen, no carbon, make right. it all happen. Um, how do you, I guess, measure their output? I guess what I'm asking is how, how do you measure the carbon production and nitrogen fixation? Yeah, so there's, there's several ways you do that. One of them is you can just grow them. If you're not supplying carbon or nitrogen, if you just separate them, if you just separate, you know, anything and put it there, nothing will grow, right? So you can turn off lights and see how fast things grow. Turn on lights and you can just measure and weigh biomass. That's one way. That's a simple way. Another way is what's called combustion. So you literally take the biomass and you burn it. it turns into a gas and you can actually measure the what's called carbon, organic carbon from that. In fact, Farmers all do that to say, how healthy is my field? They'll take soil samples from around their farm and they'll send it off to say, what's the percentage of carbon in my field? And they'll do a, what's called a combustion assay with it. They'll send it off someplace, they'll burn it, measure the carbon and nitrogen in their field, and they'll say, okay, looks like I'm a little low in nitrogen. I'll have to add a little more fertilizer. Or they'll say, oh, my organic matter, my carbon, is low, I'll need to do something to improve the overall organic matter, which is when they might put in a cover crop. They might say, oh, well, we need to increase that uh, carbon in, in the field. So they do that as a way to look at the health. And we do the same thing, whether growing in liquid or growing on solid plate. So we use a, an agarose plate, just like agar, but 
no other nutrients in it. Um, and then we're also putting it on top of soil where we can essentially take the whole soil sample and, uh, and no other inputs are there and we combust it. And then we say, did you get more carbon when you're done or do you have less carbon? So you measure, let's say you measure 100 grams of soil and you put them in two containers. On one, you put your uh, test and when you, put, you don't put a test. And then you say, is there more carbon when we're done? And we see, yes, there is. Right? And so that's how we do it is we actually, we actually measure that. The other way is a lot more sophisticated where you use an isotope of carbon called 13C. So it's just a little bit different weight. And there are machines that can actually measure that different. It's not radioactive. It's just a different weight. Um, it's like uh, having two lead weights and one would be slightly, slightly denser than the other because you put something else in it. Uh, and you just say, hey, this one's different. You can actually measure the uptake of, of uh, carbon dioxide because you can provide carbon dioxide that will have this 13C in it and measure how much is taken up by the plants. You can also do that with nitrogen using 15N slightly different isotope of nitrogen and measure that, send it off and do that. And we're in the process now of testing those experiments. And the reason we're doing that is measuring this stuff in the field. So you can measure it in the greenhouse and say, this stuff is great. And then, hey, farmer, believe me, I've done something in my little greenhouse. And they're like, great, but I live in the real world. Can you show me what's going on in the real world? And so what we're trying to do is do these isotopic studies first in the greenhouse to make sure we get it right and then take it out to the field to see how much is getting sequestered, fixed, uh, and, and taken from the atmosphere and put into, into the uh, soils. Yeah. All right. So in addition to fixing nitrogen and adding ammonia to the soil, describe the potential benefits for the climate of doing this sort of thing. Yeah. So, so this starts getting, um, this is going to start getting some pretty high powered math here. So, you know, we, we believe we can take somewhere between half a ton and a ton of CO2 per year per application, right? So let's... Per I'll, 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 application acre, acre. Per acre. Yeah. Per acre, sorry. So uh, I'll just make it simple, even though those numbers may not be entirely right, but I just want to keep the math simple. So let's, let's assume it's one ton per acre per application per year, okay? If you can put this, and let, let's say we can get the cost really low. Let's say we can get it down to like $20 an application, right? So $20 an application. I'd probably do 10 even though I know that's way too low. Um, $20 an application. So um, if you can get this now on 100 million acres, you removed 100 million tons of CO2 per year, okay? There's roughly 7 to 8 billion acres of accessible farmland. So now let's say you could do one ton. We're just going to say we have the, the entire market. We know that's not true, but let's say you have the entire market. You could pull out eight gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Humans are putting 30 gigatons into the atmosphere. Right? So, right. So it's, it's not, not that much, right? So, um, you can now take, tw that's close to 25%, right? Eight over four, 15, yeah, something in that ballpark. Eight over 30, whatever that is. It's a little, it's a little over 25% of the CO2 that humans are putting into the atmosphere every year. That can make a huge dent on yeah. our impact on the planet, right? And that's just one solution, right? We're, we're, 
we absolutely believe that many solutions have to have to be used together. Uh, in addition, you're, we also believe we can put on 30 tons of nitrogen or 30 pounds of nitrogen per acre. So now if you're on that for that much, you're essentially almost turning the amount of the Haber-Bosch process to zero. That's roughly 20% of the greenhouse gases that are being emitted. You put those two together, now you have a massive impact on climate change. So here's the Here's where the math gets to, right? So if let's, let's say it's $20 an acre, 8 billion acres. Okay, the math gets pretty good. That's $160 billion, which is a lot of money, right? But imagine you could address climate change for $160 billion, which is roughly a fourth of our defense budget. But you could now start addressing climate change for a fourth of, of the U.S. defense budget, not even the world defense budget. Right, right. Right. I mean, that's now you can start tackling this and give ourselves, let's say, more time to come up with even better solutions. But you can do this relatively easily. We can grow our microbes anywhere. Right. All we need is a pond. We just need a place to grow them and then we can take them out into the field. And again, we're, we're, we're not selling these, these yet, but we're in the process of get, trying to get these to market right now. We're in the process of testing in the field. Yeah. So talk about testing in the field that those challenges, um, because yeah. a farmer gives up something to have you do that. And then also the regulatory path, because I mean, these are completely natural organisms. Right. Yeah. So the, the, well, let's, let me talk about the regulatory path first, and then we'll talk about, about farmers and, and the challenges they have associated with this. So the regular path, the, the regulatory agency is the USDA. Um, and, um, and so they have a group of organisms that they say, you can plant these anywhere. You can put these anywhere. Those are called non-jurisdiction. And then they have a group that say, well, you can't put these anywhere. Each of those lists is a couple hundred. It's not very many. If there's a trillion species, you're kind of outside the list. And that's what we find. Most of the stuff we have is outside the list. And it's just because it's not known. Um, and so what we have to show is the presence of these organisms, uh, it, that basically came from where we said it did, and it's and it's found in a lot of different places. So as a consequence, we have to do a lot of sequencing and identifying or finding other groups that are sequencing to say, is our, our organism, is it pretty much everywhere or is it pretty rare? And if it's pretty rare, then we have a tough time taking it to the field. If it's found in a lot of places, it's much easier. We can take it out and, and then we can do that. And so what we're looking for is a group of organisms where most of the, that work really well, but everybody, the USDA knows they're out there and then we can get approval for them. So that's kind of the path that we take. Again, they are not genetically modified, so you don't have to take them through uh, the EPA to get them approved through that path. And so um, you can just um, make sure that they can, you know, just, hey, we know what these are. Uh, we know the sequence. We know the information. And so um, we're comfortable with you putting them out there and testing them. For the grower, it's it's uh, a matter of when can you get these out in the field. And so we've been thinking really hard about uh, a farmer has to take a tractor or a field a certain number of times per year, right, to, to do what they need to do. Can we figure a time for the microbes to go out there that's ex entirely when the grower is going out there as well so that we don't add an extra pass? And so, um, so, so this extra, you know, so it is $20, right? So that's a cost. It's a cost, and, and we can't get around that. Of course, it's the model is what we'd be paid on. Um, 
but if if if, uh, if we can make the cost of it's only twenty dollars, and they say, well, it's twenty dollars, but if you really do put thirty pounds of nitrogen on the soil, and it costs me, let's say, fifty cents to do that, well, that's about fifteen of my dollars right there that I've saved, right? And then, so basically, maybe it's a wash a little bit in terms of that. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I'm going to put on thirty pounds less nitrogen in at a different time, and and this may be better nitrogen. That's one of the other questions. Synthetic nitrogen, it's believed as much as seventy percent is lost to the atmosphere and converted into N two O, which is a bat really na- nasty greenhouse gas. And so the idea then becomes, uh, you know, can we put on an equivalent amount or more than equivalent amount of nitrogen. That's so the girl gets value on one. The second is uh, what's what's a carbon market. Uh, and and uh, boy, I wish the carbon market was farther along. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, every year they say it's going to be better, but it hasn't been better yet where there's where there's an actual carbon market. But there's ideas around carbon market. And uh, right now that's sitting at about 15 to $30 of ton of carbon sequestered per acre. So if they can also get value from that. And then finally, do they get a healthier soil? Do they improve yields? Do they see better for the year? And so the downside is the extra effort of loading, the, of buying it, loading the microbes, putting it on there, making sure it works. The upside is improved nitrogen use, uh, improved carbon for the field, uh, and dollars in terms of savings on nitrogen and uh, perhaps in the carbon market. Nice. So... Um, that pretty much covers sort of the business model for how this gets paid for, right? And um, sort of the, I guess we well we haven't really talked about is the risk a, a farmer takes just for testing this, like and sort of the big picture effort that we have to all be willing to sort of undertake to make things like this go forward, right? I mean, yeah. And, and that's why, you know, we're not going to be selling this uh, at least for, you know, a few more years because we do have to show safety and efficacy, right? You got to show it does what you think it does. So the greenhouse is lovely. Um, as somebody who's been in the agricultural field for 25 years, the greenhouse is, oh, that's a nice experiment. Um, and the field will totally change uh, everything you know about what's happening, right? So you have to get it out to the field you got to show it does what it's supposed to do. It doesn't have a negative impact on there. And so you take this out uh, to fields that, that we pay for. Uh, we pay for the research. We hire um, consultants that can test it for us, know what's being applied. Usually there are groups uh, through the universities that do this kind of work. And, uh, and we'll say, here's what happened. They say, what kind of experiment do you want? They'll work with you and say, well, this is how to do this the right way if you're going to be on a farm. And uh, we'll take data. We also have drones that fly over the field to make sure it's doing what we want. So the first thing we ask is, well, they should be green. Do we see reflectance? Uh, they should be growing. Is that reflectance incru- improving over time? How much of the field is being taken care of? And then you go to the field and you'll take samples, do the combustion analysis. But you'll also take samples from the top and say, Did our, are our microbes still out there? That is, we'll sequence those organisms and say, this is what we put on there. Is that what's here? Um, and, uh, and so we do those kinds of analysis as well. And we'll do that on a lot of different fields before we move to the next step. And so normally how it's done, you start with just a few fields. Then you say, hey, that worked. Let's, let's add, you know, maybe 10x more fields. 
that worked. Let's add 10 or 20x more fields. And then, you know, while you're doing that, you're figuring out how do you grow a lot of the organisms as cheaply as you can. So, um, but, you know, that's just business model. Reduce costs, increase efficiencies. Yeah. When you mentioned reflectance, that's, I mean, that's impressive. If, if you're talking about growing enough of this stuff that a drone can see a change mm-hmm. in the reflectance on the soil. Yeah. Well, you can actually see this stuff, you know. So, so um, when you go to the field, you can actually see these things growing out there. And in the greenhouses, it's really, really easy to see that stuff. And when so we develop reflectance, we develop reflectance. And in fact, we're working with the, the Danforth Center, which is in St. Louis, uh, just not far from us. And they have something called a crop reporter. So they have a machine they call a crop reporter, which is how healthy is this plant using reflectance and all these things. And we just take our stuff down there and use it exactly the same way. So we're, we're building those models about how to understand it in the same way they've used to look at plants. And, and remember, the cyanobacteria are related to the chloroplasts you find in plants, right? They're both derived from, a, from, a, from the same precursor organisms. And so the, you know, the photosynthetic machinery is, in fact, almost exactly the same, right? So, we're, so I, li- I like to explain this to people is that don't think of them as, as bacteria. Think of them as really tiny plants, they're doing exactly what we want the plants to do. <laughs> That's nice. It's also, I'll just point out that this uh, is sort of a callback to one of the very first episodes I did on this podcast, which was about machine vision and using um, either satellite or other airborne imagery to assess the health of plants. Yeah, a, that, exactly right. And, and we've developed that machine vision for our lab work. Right. So we do a lot of machine vision in the lab. One of our, our first assays we developed. So, you know, you can grow these in liquid. Great. But the farm's not liquid. Right. And so you had to come up with a model for soil. And at first it was hard for us to distinguish microbes from soil. And so um, what our scientists did was to essentially take agarose and little 12 well wells um, uh, plates and essentially grow it on there, starting with, you know, just a microliter material. And of course, it starts growing out using photosynthesis. And you just measure that over time. And that essentially goes from nothing to keep growing out. And you can generate using machine vision, you can actually generate a growth rate for how fast it's growing, allows you to compare different consortia to say which ones are growing faster, allows you to see what the reflectance is and start using machine vision to say, well, which ones work better. And pretty much we always find that the ones that grow better in our, you know, you know, basically surrogate soil, grow better on regular soil. We see that every time. We've seen that every time so far. And so it allows us to very rapidly uh, figure out which of these groups of organisms grow better. And then we can confirm that using different kinds of assays to show, is, are they also working better in soil? Can we bulk them up faster, et cetera? Nice. Barry Goldman, this has been a treat to, uh, one, reconnect, and two, here, this is, a, I think, a really cool story. I uh, wish you a lot of success. Well, th- thanks, Chris. Thanks. <laughs>